Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That's page 222 in the Pew Bible, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we gather here this morning and gather together grateful that we do have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. And we are desperate to hear his voice this morning. So we ask you, God, to move among us this morning. Open our ears, our hearts, to what you may have to speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the other day, my wife Jessica was about to head to Hannaford's down the road uh, to get some groceries, and she asked me a question I'm sure many of you have been asked before. Do you need anything? Now, My initial response to that is, well, yeah, I need some Milano's and some ice cream, some Cheez-Its to snack on, the extra toasty ones, of course, and maybe an ice-cold soda to wash it all down. And maybe right now you're judging me at the moment, thinking, I think Matt needs to be on a diet. And uh, you'd probably be right, but I am doing better. Um, But that got me thinking about the amount of needs that we have on a daily basis. Some of them great needs and valid needs, and some of them not so much. For example, we have relational needs. We have emotional needs, financial needs. We have needs about our house. We have car needs. We have school needs. Security needs, job needs, survival needs, sports needs. Or maybe you're a parent and are like me and just really need your youngest child not to make noises at the top of his lungs at 5 o'clock in the morning every morning. It's just like, please, can you just sleep for one more hour at least? The point being is we have a lot of needs But is there a need that we all commonly have that far surpasses anything else? I'm wondering this morning if you've ever asked yourself the question, what is your greatest need? And this is the question 
precisely the question that Ruth chapter 1 aims to answer for us this morning. So what I want us to do this morning is to ponder, as we're pondering this message and looking through this text, is to ask yourself the question, what is truly my greatest need in life? And let's look at what God's word has for us, starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, which again is at, on page 222 of your pew Bible. Notice first how pregnant verse number one is with the facts that the author is using to help paint the backdrop of the book of Ruth. To the ears of an Israelite, the list of facts would have clearly painted the picture for them how dark and depressing this time really was. The first thing that we see is that we see that it was set in a time of the judges. When the judges ruled, which is a time of gross immorality. Some of the most horrific stories in the Bible are contained in the book of Judges. This is a time of unfaithfulness to God. It was a time of oppression and apostasy and chaos. And if you turn your Bible back a page to Judges, the very last verse, the the scripture summarizes this time in Israel's history as this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sin was rampant during this time in Israel's history, and it was a time of dark, dark days. And then next, we're told that in those days, there is a famine, a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And as Deuteronomy 28 describes, this famine was a famine of judgment because of the disobedience of God's people and violating God's covenant with them. Think about it. The promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, now a land under famine. Sounds like a movie title or something. But notice the irony here used by the author. Bethlehem was, is, is known as the house of bread. That's what the term actually means. It means the house of bread, and now they have no bread to offer whatsoever. And because of the famine, a man and his family make the decision to move out of God's promised land, to move away from the land where God said he would dwell with his people, to leave the place of worship, and to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, you may remember how the Moabites first were, were started from last week, but in case you forgot, let me remind you, Genesis chapter 19, an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. Not a very pretty scene whatsoever. Both daughters conceived and gave birth, one to a little boy named Moab, and one to a little boy named Ben-Ami. Moab was the father of the Moabite nation, and Ben-Ami the father of the Ammonite nation. And all throughout Israel's history, these nations were at odds with one another. They worshipped pagan gods and were immoral in every way. The Moabite women seduced the Israelite men to sexual immorality and idol worship seen in Numbers 25. 
And just in Judges chapter 3, they were under the oppressive rulership of the Moabite king, King Eglon, for 18 years. I mean, time after time in the Old Testament, you can read about the wickedness and the hatred of the Moabites towards God's people. And this is where this Israelite family decided to leave and decided to sojourn. It was a shameful, shameful place. And so, just in this first verse, can you feel the weight of this text already? I mean, we're not even in to the second verse yet. And there, this is heavy stuff. And so, in verse 2, we're introduced to the first characters of the story. The name of the man was Elimelech, which ironically means, my God is king. A man who evidently is not living up to the meaning of his name, that's for sure. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And the text says that they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. Now I want you to notice the succinct, somewhat cold nature that the author describes these next facts in verses 3 through 5. We aren't told any details. We are just told the cold, hard facts. It's like rapid fire, just one after another. Listen to this again. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. Just boom, 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 boom. Just one tragedy after another. And just like that, in a 10-year time frame, everyone's worst nightmare came true for Naomi. I can't imagine the pain and the grief that she must have felt. I mean, think about it. After 10 years, she's looking around, and her whole family is gone. She's lost everything. And as the listener, you're asking yourself the question, what in the world is going on here? How did they die? Were the deaths punishment for not trusting in the Lord? Or for marrying these Moabite women? And the truth of the matter is, we don't know. The author doesn't plainly tell us. But what we do know is that Naomi is now widowed in a male-dominated culture with two Moabite women who have no children of their own, and there's no seed to carry on Elimelech's family line. And in those days in Israel, this was one of the greatest tragedies for an Israelite family, for their family line to become extinct. And what we see here is this family is on the brink of extinction, and there's no promising hope for them in the future. Her husband, dead. Her two sons, dead. 
Now, in ancient Israel, there is a law that was in place that if the husband died, his brother, if he had any, bore the responsibility to marry the widow to perpetuate the family name. And if there wasn't any brothers, then the next closest relative was responsible. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But in other words, Naomi is incapable in and of herself to do anything about her situation. She needs someone from outside of herself to intervene on her behalf and redeem Elimelech's legacy to continue the family line. And the problem with all this, you know what it is, right? She's in Moab. She has no one. She's lost everything. Her husband is gone. No sons, no grandchildren. And all there is is just grief and despair, and destitution. So you want a recap of verses 1 through 5? Here it is. It's, it's gloom. It's darkness. It's death. It's barrenness. It's sorrow. It's deep, deep misery. Just heavy, weighty weighty stuff. And the listener, again, is left to wonder, well, what in the world can happen next? What possibly can come next after this? So before we move on, let's take a deep breath. Get it together. Let's look at verse number six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Here we see the plot start to begin to thicken. It is here that we begin to see the providential hand of God shining little glimpses of hope across the dark and miserable opening that we just read. Notice that the Lord is mentioned for the first time in the book here. And he is shown to be actively involved in the affairs of the day. And so much so that the author describes that it was the Lord's direct action that caused the barrenness of the land of Judah to be fruitful once again with food. The text said that he had visited them. In other words, he was looking after them. It has provided them food. And so just think about this for a moment. This is such a beautiful reminder of the nature and character of God for us today. Our God is a God of grace. His grace is endless, and he delights to bless his people. It would have been perfectly righteous and just for God to wipe out his people and for turning, his back on, turning their back on them, especially in this time of Israel, Israel's history. But he's patient, and he's kind, and he's merciful, and he's gracious. Over the course of the week of studying this text, I was just completely moved by this unbounding, never-ending grace of God. And the grace that we see throughout this book that we'll see in the coming weeks 
the grace that we see in his church that he gives his people and the grace that he has shown me in my own life as well. And so I'm, I'm wondering, believer, if you take time throughout your week to meditate on God's grace in your life and to thank him and to praise him for his kindness towards you. He delights to bless his children with his grace. And he's intimately involved in your life. And we see that grace evident in verse 6 right here. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law decide to return to the land of Judah. And sometime along the way, Naomi stops, and in verses 8 through 17, we're introduced to the author's dominant literary feature that he uses throughout this entire book, which this is that of dialogue. And in verses 8 and following, we see that Naomi breaks her silence, and we get to see an inside look of this raw emotion and lament that she is experiencing. And within these verses, Naomi gives three pointed and specific pleas for Ruth and Orpah to return back to Moab. Look with me at verse 8. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi is coming to her senses here and realizing the fact that having both of her young widowed daughters-in-law with her to join her on this journey back to Judah is probably not the best idea for them. She's coming to grips with her own hopelessness and her own situation. And she's seeing that if they were to tag along, there's probably going to be no hope for them either. And so she urges them to go home, to go back, so they can find a husband that would provide for them, that would give security and take care of them. And she blesses and prays for them. Do you hear what she said? Listen to what she says. She uses God's covenant name. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's essentially releasing them from her grip and telling them, you're both young. You have your whole life ahead of you. Go and leave me and find husbands that will love you. And may the Lord repay you for the love you have shown to me and my two boys. I mean, can you just imagine this scene? I mean, it is heartbreaking if you really start to think about it. And it's evident that that's the case because at the end of verse 9, she kisses both of them and they lift up their voices together and wept. A scene that is full of drama, full of emotion, as they loudly are lamenting together on this lonely road back to Judah. And in this raw moment, we get to see the close and affectionate bond that these women had together. I mean, think about what they went through. They went through hell together. They've grieved the people that they loved. 
They've gone through heartache after heartache with each other. They've been there for each other all throughout this whole process. And the possibility that they might never see each other again is too much to bear. So what do they do? Well, we hear their response in verse 10. And this is what they initially said. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And although their profession to stay with Naomi is admirable, Naomi is persistent. And in verses 11 through 13, she makes a pretty convincing argument of why they should go. Listen to Naomi's response. She says, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, may, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Again, Naomi is, appeals to her daughters-in-law to go back, and again she bases her argument on the future of marriage for both Ruth and Orpah. As Naomi builds her argument, she increasingly tries to make their determination to stay look completely irrational. She effectively communicates the fact that she's too old to have a husband. Therefore, she can't bear any more children for them. And her rhetorical questions regarding the hypothetical situation that she makes up makes it even more convincing of why they should leave and not stay with her. She's essentially saying that the opportunity that they have right now to marry for their future, to find security, is way better than the impossible probabilities of staying with her. And so they're saying, don't, she's saying, don't miss out on this opportunity. Go back. And to top it all off, did you notice what she said in verse 13? She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Obviously implying that since the hand of the Lord has gone out against her, if they were to follow her, the hand of the Lord is going to go out against them as well. And then again, look what happens in verse 14. They lift up their voices and wept again. I mean, I am not a super emotional person. But as I'm reading this throughout the week, I can't help but feel this deep emotion in the scene. I mean, the life that these women live together and everything in this moment is coming to a point where there needs to be a decision that is made. Do you stay and risk never having the security and provision and love of a husband? Going into the land where you know that you will be despised because of your Moabite heritage? Or do you leave Naomi, the one who you've experienced so much life with, and go back home and never see her again? And they're wailing and lamenting over this together. I mean, what would you do in a situation like that? Well, we know what Orpah did. At the end of verse 14, 
We read, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left. So Orpah makes the decision to go back home. The argument was obviously convincing enough for her. And notice that the author doesn't comment on whether or not this is a bad decision on her part. We never hear from Orpah again in Scripture, but her decision sets the scene for the radical commitment that is made by Ruth in the coming verses. And we see it starting to play out at the end of verse 14. Look at it again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left, but Ruth clung to her. This clinging is the same word that is used in Genesis 2.24 in a marriage When a a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves and holds fast and clings to his wife. It's the same picture of commitment and dedication. And so here they are. They're standing in the middle of this lonely desert with rugged and steep terrain all over surrounding them. And with tears streaming down her face, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law one last time and turns away and walks off. But Ruth lunges and clings to her mother-in-law with all her might. And as Orpah walks away, Naomi gives one last try to tell her to go. And it says in verse 15, look what it says. It says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. There's still time. Go after her. One last-ditch effort that she makes. But what follows next are some of the most profound statements in the Bible from Ruth's mouth. And the more and more that I've thought about these, the more and more profound and remarkable they are. I mean, if you picture it, Orpah leaves. She's walking out into the distance. You got Naomi making her one last plea for her to stay or to go. And this is the time where they are clinging with each other. And then Ruth looks at Naomi right in her eyes and says, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, what a picture of commitment and love and dedication and faith. And if you look at the profound nature of these verses, they they build upon one another. First, she confesses to Naomi that she is committed to her wherever she goes, meaning that that she is forsaking everything that is known to her, everything that is familiar, where she grew up, her friends, her family, her gods, her reputation, her culture, her idols, She's turning from it all. And secondly, she identifies herself with, the, with Israel's God and his people. And not only that, she commits to Naomi 
that even when she dies, which undoubtedly is going to happen first, because Naomi is older than she is, that she won't go back even then, that she will be buried there with her. And the implications of this are absolutely astonishing. Based on Naomi's argument that she just made, Ruth is essentially committing herself to a future of widowhood and childlessness. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. You read this and you're like, why would she do that? And then you look at verse 17. She makes a self-imprecatory oath on herself and using God's covenant name and calling judgment on herself that if she ever went back on her word, that God would judge her. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of adventurous, courageous, wholehearted faith and commitment, both to Naomi and to Israel, Israel's God and his people. A faith where the only reasonable explanation is that it was God-given. A faith that transformed her life. And my prayer this past week is that God would move among this service and give people in this room right now that kind of faith. A bold, God-given faith that makes no sense to the world, but follows after God wholeheartedly. People who would forsake worldly pleasures and turn away from all the false comforts that this world has to offer. And live lives of holiness and righteousness and a deep love and commitment to God and his people. This is the God-given faith of Ruth that is being exemplified here, a life transformation type of faith. And that is my prayer for you this morning as well. Now, as we look back at verses 16 through 17, after that kind of resolved commitment, you would expect, at least think, that something would be said. But that's not what we find in verse 18. Rather, it says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And so on to Bethlehem they go. A trek that may have taken them a week to get there on foot, and we're not told if there was ever a word spoken the whole time. And now as they get closer to Bethlehem, I'm already feeling just the, the tension that is about to occur. I mean, don't you? I mean, this is just a little over 10 years ago. Naomi and her family left the same land to find food in a pagan enemy territory. And she's returning without her husband without her sons, and more importantly, she's coming back with a Moabite woman. I mean, that's got to be a little awkward. (laughs) And when they get into town, verse 19 says, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Can this really be her? And notice from here on out, with the exception of the author's summary statement in verse 22, Ruth seems to be non-existent at this point. And so listen to Naomi's response. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Very strong words in a very awkward first conversation with your friends that you haven't seen in the last 10 years. But I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, the name Naomi means pleasant. So she's saying, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She claims that it was the Lord who testified against her and who is the one who brought calamity upon her, the cause of her coming back empty. And now before we get too hard on Naomi for her for wrong-headed thinking, the implications of God not having any control over tragic events or any human affairs is even a more horrific thought. If God was at least involved, he might very well cause things to occur to straighten out the situation. And so I want you to know this. God is not surprised by tragedy or death or human decision. And though despite all appearances to us that seem like things are completely out of control, our God is sovereignly orchestrating events with a divine purpose. And we will see this theme continue to be played out and clarified as we continue each week going through the book of Ruth. But here's what we see with Naomi's claim against God. Though her feelings of despair are raw and utterly honest, they are sitting on a bedrock of faith that proclaims that God is a God who is the ruler of the universe and nothing escapes his providential hand over the affairs of life. Naomi did miss something. It says she returned to Bethlehem. She had no husband. She had no sons. But she didn't return empty. If she only realized that what she had standing right in front of her in the person of Ruth was that God was going to use this person and the chapters to come to carry on her familial line and give birth to a son that would become eventually King David and through which would eventually come the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in light of the loss of Naomi's husband's and, husband and sons, Ruth seems to be nothing. But at the end of the book, in chapter 4, verse 15, she's identified as the daughter-in-law who is more to Naomi than seven sons. And the lesson for us to hear, lesson for us here is when we focus on all our immediate problems, we can sometimes miss what God is doing right in front of us. And I believe the author is emphasizing that in verse 22. Look what it says. It says, Naomi, so Naomi returned... And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You see that? 
Ruth is with her. And they came at the beginning of the barley harvest. So again, these, these glimmers of hope that are interwoven into this dark and gloomy type of story, which is the providential hand of God at work, orchestrating seemingly hopeless, hopeless events into salvific triumphs. And for all of you guys who have read ahead, you know where the story is going, but if we were to stop right here in chapter 1, we're still left with some questions, both for Naomi and, uh, and Ruth as well. As the poor, as two poor and destitute widows with no security, will they actually find food and care? Who is going to actually provide for them? Will their needs be met? Who will take care of them? But the most looming question we should be asking at the end of this chapter is, who is going to be the Redeemer? Who will redeem them? At this point in the story, Naomi is desperately needing someone from outside of herself to intervene on her behalf to deliver her from a tragic situation. She needs a Redeemer. And this is where the whole story of Ruth chapter 1 gets really good. Because if we look a little bit deeper, we can see echoes of our own spiritual story interwoven here. See, Ruth and Naomi's destitution points to the spiritual destitution of our own soul, enslaved to our own sin. The dark and the weary backdrop of Ruth chapter 1 points to the reality of our own spiritual condition apart from Christ. Their need for a Redeemer points us to our own need of a Redeemer to save us and to rescue us. And it is us whose souls were spiritually hungering and thirsting for food and fulfillment, desperately looking in all the wrong places. And just as Ruth the Moabitess, we too were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, just as Ephesians chapter 2 says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of our flesh, pursuing our lustful passions, having no thought of God whatsoever. And our sinful condition rightfully deserved God's wrath and judgment, a condition that we were so enslaved to that we couldn't do anything in our own power and to change anything. And just like Naomi, we needed someone outside of ourselves to intervene on our behalf and rescue us from our pit of despair. And so praise be to God that he provided that person in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's spilt blood on the cross, we are rescued from God's judgment. We are redeemed from the curse of the law and released from the power of sin. It was Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. Christ saw in our need and he took it upon himself to take the necessary action to deliver us from our wicked state and to make us new. And because of his resurrection, we have hope. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Praise be to God. 
Christ loves the unlovable. He rescues the unrescuable. He forgives the unforgivable. He cares for the outcast. And he saves those who are most unlikely to be saved. And brother and sister, that was you. And that's what Ruth chapter 1 really teaches us. It reveals to us our own need for a Redeemer, and the Redeemer is provided for us by God in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let me ask those unbelieving here this morning. I'm wondering if you're starting to realize that Naomi's misery in this story is a picture of the miserable condition of your own soul. The darkness that evades the beginning of Ruth chapter 1 is just a glimpse of what you have before you spiritually in eternity because of your sin. But the agony and the suffering experienced in hell will be infinitely more than what we've read this morning. Have you thought about what your greatest need is? It's redemption. It's redemption of your own soul from sin's curse. You need spiritual life. A redeemer who can renew and transform your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, before coming in faith in Christ, just a little over eight years ago, I was dealing drugs. And I was high all the time. It was the first thing I thought about whenever I woke up and the last thing I did before I fell asleep. I idolized the rappers, the lifestyle of the rappers that I listened to. I wanted the drugs, the money, the fame, the lavish lifestyle. I wanted it all, and I pursued it. I thought that those things would give me contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. But one night, I listened to a sermon online on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I realized that night that my soul was in a spiritual famine. I was hungering and thirsting for all the wrong things. The things that would never and could never satisfy me. The hole that was in my heart was never getting filled. And as I was listening to this preacher, I felt as if God was speaking directly to me. Opening my eyes and opening my heart and revealing to me my own sin and that it would separate me from him. That night, I realized I needed a redeemer. And he transformed me. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he can do the same thing for you. So maybe you're here today and can resonate with a famished soul. So let me ask you, Have you ever considered this Jesus that I'm preaching about? 
this one true redeemer who can deliver you. Can I plead with you this morning to come to this Jesus? Come and find forgiveness like I and many other people in this room have found and be transformed. Don't hesitate because you don't have all your answers, your questions answered. Don't hesitate because you wonder how people will perceive you. Come as you are and be saved. The offer of eternal salvation is for you this morning. And I'm calling on you to have a Ruth-like faith and forsake your sin, to turn from your sinful lifestyle and all that comes with it and cling to Jesus this morning. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, this need of a Redeemer should be just as real and just as great of a need for you as it was before you came to Christ, if not more so. There is a temptation that after we come to faith in Jesus to forget where we came from and consequently think we can walk this Christian life in our own power. And so I'm wondering this morning if you've experienced that in your own life right now. Have you forgotten the place where Christ has saved you from? Has your own testimony unknowingly become old news to you? Or are you experiencing God's bitter providence in a challenging season right now? And you're just trying to hold everything together. And you know mentally that Christ is your redeemer. But the way that you're acting and living out your life is as if you are in control of everything. Whether it's loneliness that you're feeling, a struggle with sin or shame, grief of a loved one, persecution from family members, marital strife, your struggle in parenting your kids, comparing yourself with this person or that person, the feelings of deep anxiety to the point where you don't even want to walk out of your house and be in public, the fear of being found out. Whatever it is, all these things, from the mundane events to the most tragic, are God's way of orchestrating all things to make you dependent upon him and changing you into greater Christ-likeness. I like the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Listen to this. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is the hope that we have in the Christian life, that whatever circumstances we face, we have a God who is both sovereignly in control and who also deeply cares for his children. 
the misery of the difficult or sorrowful moments that you might feel in this life work in conjunction with the new mercies that we receive every single day. They're designed to to bring us to our knees and to cry out to him in utter dependence and desperation. They're designed to make us more like Christ, to bring about an increasing love, a greater joy, a lasting peace, a more resolved patience, a growing kindness, a deeper goodness, a more devoted faithfulness, a progressing gentleness, and a higher capacity of self-control. This is the truth that we cling to as believers today, that in the mundane events of life, to the most hopeless, the Lord is our portion. He is our refuge, our rock, and our Redeemer. And his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So let me encourage you, Not to forget where you came from. Rehearse your testimony and resolve to never get over the fact that Christ has saved you from the pit of hell. Let it drive you to your knees. And spend some time this week meditating on his goodness, his grace, and his love towards you. And praise God that he has provided for you this great Redeemer in Jesus Christ the one who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace. We are so grateful for what you have provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he gives us hope for the future. And under the weightiness of life that we experience day in and day out, God, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes focused on him today and throughout this week. I pray that would be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.